Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Robert Puckett, Molly Keck, and Janet Hurley. All right. So this episode of Unwanted Guests, we are talking about tawny crazy ants. So we are going to start off first with the question that I know I always get. Why are they called crazy ants? And this just isn't tawny crazy ants. There's black crazy ants and other types of crazy ants. But, you know, that's always the first thing that comes out of people's mouth. Why are they crazy ants? Anybody? Well, yeah. I mean, so so a lot of ants... um, the foragers go out and find resources and they recruit nest mates to them along sort of a linear trail and tawny crazy ants are sort of different from that they just sort of forage in a diffuse manner and the environment makes them look like um they don't form tight foraging trails like some other ants that people are familiar with um but they're uh they're actually not any more crazy than any other species of ant this has to do with their foraging behavior i think mainly that and there are other ant species that also kind of make those loose trails. But to me, it seems like those are directional. They might be loose trails, but they're going in a single direction. Whereas crazy ants seem to almost run in circles, right and left and wiggle around until they finally make it to their destination. So it's like really loose trails. It kind of reminds me of like when my kid was little and it's like, you know, it's that squirrel from like up. They get distracted, so they got to look over there. So, yeah, that's kind of what's in my brain. All right. So, the next thing, you know, so we know the crazy, but why are they tawny crazy ants? Why, like, what, what makes them a tawny crazy ant and not a black crazy ant? How can you tell that you have tawny crazy ants versus the ones that aren't tawny crazy ants? Yeah, that gets complicated too. It depends on which uh, which ants that aren't tawny crazy ants we're talking about. I mean, there's so there's like the the um, uh, black crazy ant. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit larger ant. They're really darkly colored. I mean, you can distinguish the the coloration difference between black crazy ants and tawny crazy ants. But with tawny crazy ants, there's also lots of closely related uh, species in the same genus that look very very similar. Um, to the degree that sometimes it's difficult for even, even those of us that have some expertise in identifying have, have trouble doing so. So do we have those species in, or those um, other ants in the same genera in Texas that yeah. people would get them confused? Yeah, the, the, most, the most common, so, so um, tawny crazy ants are um, Nylandaria fulva, the most common native species in the genus that, that, that I see is Nylandaria terricola. And in fact, we've got a colony of these guys just outside the lab that occur just naturally. And we, I, I find them pretty frequently. Correct, yeah. So, so um, terricola colonies are very, very small relative to tawny crazy ants, at least mature colonies. And that, that can be tricky too, because you know, tawny crazy ants don't start out as a big ripping density of ants. You know, they start as an incipient population. And so 
um, you know, if you've got a new population of tawny crazy ants and, you know, and, and they're small in numbers, it, it can be confusing and for people that are trying to identify them. Um, but yeah, so, but they'll, they'll pretty quickly uh, grow in number and, and uh, tell you the story themselves. So usually when I, when I'm looking at tawny crazy ants, I mean, usually the ants that people send me and that they might think are tawny crazy ants that aren't are Argentine ants and cheese ants. And so the first thing that I talk to people about is, okay, well, if you have a lot of them, squish one and smell your finger. And if your finger smells like blue cheese, then you have cheese ants. So that kind of can either, you know, give you that identification or it can nix out, okay, it's not a cheese ant. And then the next thing, if you have a hand lens or if you're fancy and have a microscope at home, uh, throw it under there. And if it doesn't have any hairs on its body, then it's probably going to be an Argentine ant. If you are confusing it with a tawny crazy ant. And then if it does have hairs on its body, that's where things like, well, send it in because then you have to start looking at other hairs on the body that are between the legs and it just gets all goofy. <laughs> so, so that's when you need to shuffle it to us. <laughs> but then you, you know, if you have, you know, millions of them and they're covering your whole entire backyard, then, you know, you could probably guesstimate that if it has hairs and it's doing that, you probably have tawny crazy ants. Yeah, wherever you sprayed, it looks like uh, uh, coffee grounds. That's like, that's like the, like across the board, that's the way people describe it all the time. So when I hear that, I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So, and that kind of leads me, Molly, you know, that, that leads to why they're such a problem, you know, talk. Talk about that. I mean, because it's not like they they sting, right? Yeah, my they they're not a stinging ant. I'm sure they can bite because they have mouth parts, right? But um, I think that their main the main concern for them is just the massive numbers of their population getting inside. Um, being found all over the place outside. When you treat and you form a barrier around your house, they'll pile up dead, dead after dead after dead until the dead are so thick that they've diluted that pesticide. And all you have is a pile of dead and live ones crawling over the dead ones to get inside. And um, there also can be an issue in beehives. So if you're a beekeeper and they're out in the apiary, then they can be a major issue and, and cause the demise of that hive. Um, and I understand that they can be an issue for livestock and uh, wildlife, especially for ground nesting animals, because they like, a, as opposed to fire ants, they essentially suffocate the animals instead of stinging them and, you know, having the venom kill them. They, they just swarm all over their body, I guess, get uh, lodged in their nasal cavities and um, then they can't breathe anymore. That reminds me of what was it like creep show where they had that apartment that was full of cockroaches and it was just like everywhere, all over everybody. Mm -hmm. But Robert, you've done some research on um, neighborhoods that have tawny crazy ants and kind of the way that the populations kind of grow throughout the year and they decline and other animals moving in and out of those areas. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, we, we have done quite a lot of um, research to investigate means of controlling these guys, both with baits and contact insecticides. But then in just a general sense, um, Danny McDonald, Dr. Danny McDonald, um, a previous member of our lab, a student uh, at the time, he, he was actually investigating you know, sort of how fast they spread by natural means in a system. And, and 
he followed a population of these guys for three years. So we have a pretty good sense of, of how fast they can naturally grow and expand their population. So they were moving about 250 yards annually, um, radiating, radiating out from the initial site of infestation in a, in a neighborhood. And so, you know, we, we talk to homeowners a lot about this problem. Like if you're the first person that has these ants in your neighborhood, this is great news because we can prob probably knock them down. We might even get rid of the population. I mean, it has been done if you can catch them early enough. But the problem is once, once they begin to spread and they're basically covering all the yards in a neighborhood, well, if you can't get everybody on board to treat simultaneously, then have much hope of destroying that population. Um, rather just protecting your house. I'm sure we can talk more about management later, but then in terms of sort of what that means for other organisms that are using the same system, I mean, there's been numerous papers showing that when these guys show up and their density starts to increase, um, uh, you, you, you have um, the opposite in terms of densities and diversity of other arthropods. So they begin to plummet because they get out competed by these ants. I mean, it's, it's from, it just really is remarkable. Until you've seen it, you just can't imagine how many ants in, in a well-established population there are. Um, to the degree that they will even outcompete red imported fire ants, something that none of us would have ever anticipated happening. Um, you know, because fire ants, one of, the, one of the chief means of their success in invading new habitats is to be able to forage and support their colony um, nutrient requirements through their foraging activities. But these ants, because they outnumber them greatly, will outcompete them for resources. And yeah, so, so this can cause crashes in populations of other organisms in a system. But the good news is um, in many, many cases, um, tawny crazy ants move into a system, they wreak havoc for a few years. And then what looks like happens is they, they actually sort of, they consume so many uh, resources from the environment that their population tends to crash. And we've seen this in lots and lots of different situations. So that's sort of the good news, but they, they never go to zero. I mean, they're still there, but existing at low population density. So we have seen um, situations where they began to increase again and become a significant pest problem. So the animals that they kind of push out, do those move back in once their population declines? You know, that's a good question. I don't know that we have data to support what I'm about to say, but you know, there's this old saying, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So if you have these ants that come in and, and they, um, they extirpate populations of other arthropods and, and, and maybe in some cases vertebrate animals. Um, you know, the idea is that if their population crashes in the future, that leaves an opening for those organisms to move back in. I suspect they would. And so where are they? I know these started in the Houston area. So mm -hmm. how far have they moved and will they eventually cover the whole entire state or are there environmental conditions that will keep them in check for certain parts? Yeah, I think, um, or do we know that? We, well, we kind of do. Um, so there's been some, some habitat, uh, modeling in their native system. And then of course, comparisons to, to our habitats in, in the Southern United States. And it looks like the greatest densities of these will remain, you know, maybe a couple hundred miles inland from the Gulf coast counties. Not only in our state, but in you know Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. Um, so that's good news for folks in the northern portion of our state and you know north of Central Texas. I mean, we don't have them in the Metroplex, as, as far as anybody knows. Um, the furthest north 
um, I'm trying to think is Angelina County, I believe, in, in East Texas. Um, but, but of course they spread westward through the state. So, so obviously, Wizzy, you guys have them in Austin, Molly down in San Antonio, and south of there down to around Corpus, and then around the coastal bend a bit in some of those counties. We have them in 41 counties. Um, and and if, you, if you were to look at the map of the distribution in Texas, what, what you'll see is this sort of mosaic of, of uh, you know, hot counties that have the ants and then uh, counties in between them that don't. Well, I think it's likely that they just haven't been confirmed from those counties. Yeah. And we do confirm new counties every year. And so, so our most recent um, county confirmation was Blanco County. That was uh, just a couple oh, okay. months ago. Yeah. So we should probably back up. Um since these are an invasive ant, they're not native to Texas, uh, where did they come from? <laughs> yeah, so um, if you looked at their native range distribution, it sort of spans from kind of Southern Brazil down into Argentina, um, quite a big footprint. And, and actually they, they overlap with the native range of red imported fire ants, which gives us some sense that, you know, these guys have been competing together for a long time. And then they showed up in this new environment and, poor fire ants were like, oh, no, these guys again. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway, they're, they're uh, yeah, so they're, they're from that sort of hotbed of invasive ants. You know, mo most of our invasive ants are from that system. We have a few from the old world, but mo most of our invasive ants are from the new world. Yeah. Was Texas the first state to have them from South America, or did they show up in other states first and then made it to our state? No, no, no. We, um, so they, they were in Florida first, like a lot of a lot of invasive insects and pests. They, you know, they either show up in Texas, Florida or California first because of all the, the agricultural goods that move through those states. But it looks like they were in Florida first, then jumped to Texas, and then have now have been filling gaps all over the southeastern U.S. Did they, I imagine it probably, they probably didn't hit Florida first and from Florida come from Texas, probably came from South America, just two separate uh, situations. Um, yeah, I think I think it's still sort of unclear, but I, I know folks like um, you know, Ed Varga, the endowed chair of urban entomology, they're looking at this. They're doing some molecular work trying to track this back. I also have another question on y'all's uh, urban entomology website. Mm -hmm. it, are the counties that they're found in within Texas updated regularly or is that kind of older or all four? 41 are on there, I guess is what I'm asking. No, I, I don't think all 41 are on the, the current map. Um, it needs to be updated. So where can people go to find out if they've already been established in their county? One place, it, oddly enough, the, 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 the easiest way to determine whether or not your county has a confirmed population of these ants is on, um, there's a pesticide called Termidor. And so the way this works is as soon as we get a confirmation, we, as soon as we con confirm a, a tawny crazy ant population in a new county, we reach out to Texas Department of Agriculture, um, EPA, and BASF, uh, the manufacturer of Termidor. Um, and, and they've streamlined this process so that new counties can be added to the, there's a special label and, and use pattern for Termidor in counties that have these ants. And so um, it takes TDA and EPA and BASF about two weeks now to have a new county added to their label. So Blanco was on, on the, the label, uh, the amended label within just two weeks of us confirming. So actually that, that if, if you wanna 
until we get our websites updated, Molly, um, the easiest place for people to go is the BASF website. Just look up Termidor quarantine exemption label um, and uh, the counties will be there. And that kind of leads us in what, what can homeowners do first to avoid tawny crazy ants? To avoid them. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, I, I, they're, they're, as you say, I mean, they're, they're inconspicuous in terms of mounds. They don't build a mound. So if they're in your area, it's pretty difficult to avoid them if you're dealing with an, with an infestation of them. Um, you know, I suppose you could, if you're traveling, let's say you're camping or RVing in areas that are infested, um, you, you know, you, you could you could talk to park folks and say, hey, do you know about these ants? Have they been here? Do you have them? To try and avoid them, avoid getting them in your materials and, and equipment. But yeah, I mean, if, if they're around, they're, they're very difficult. Yeah, I usually have people the warn them about um, like plants and landscape materials, mm -hmm. kind of check those things out before they purchase them and bring them in, especially yeah. if they're transporting them from a county that they know is infested, like, yeah. I don't know. When I go to Houston, I always have to stop at Houston Garden Center and mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, I gotta make sure I'm not bringing anything home with me. Yeah, this is very important um, for, for reasons outside of Tawny Crazy Ants. It's very important to check the plants that you bring onto your property. Um, but if, you know, in the context of this discussion, yeah, you, you should definitely be checking. Cause I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this is a, a, a major means by which these ants have been moved around. Same with fire ants. Yeah. Um, you know. Tons of stuff. Yeah. So right. if homeowners already have tawny crazy ants, mm -hmm. what things other than pesticides, because we'll talk to pest, we'll talk about pesticides in a minute. Um, what can they do to reduce the tawnies in the environment without using pesticides? Hmm. So for that one, I usually talk to people about a lot of kind of IPM things. I mean, one, excluding your house to kind of try to keep them outside instead of having them come in. Um, reducing water by fixing any kind of leaking, whatever, AC mm -hmm. units or sprinkler systems. And then kind of trying to get stuff up off the ground because yes. a lot of times they'll get under everything and that just kind of gives them more places to kind of hide and hang out. Yep. And that's usually, those are suggestions I give to people if they are at the front end of the tawny crazy ant thing. If they're in the thick of it, then, you know, that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, debris is, is such a big part of this discussion because, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times, they don't build mounds. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're not building a nest and staying there, right? And then going out and foraging. Rather, they just utilize any materials that they can find that will hold moisture underneath. So if you can reduce the moisture, irrigation moisture in your yard, um, remove debris, then you're removing their nesting sites. I found them underneath potted plants, um, plywood in the backyard, you know, you name it, paving stones. Firewood. Um, yes, yeah. right. So, so get the debris out of there. So the, the, these guys are what we, we refer to as leaf litter ants. So they, they just sort of nest wherever they can find moisture in a forest floor. Um, and they'll do the same, they'll replicate that in your yard um, with materials that you have around. Yeah, and that kind of leads to the next question. You know, I always get the question, well, what about using baits for tawny crazy ants? And that's another one where it's like, 
It depends on your population size, because if you have one that is just ginormous, then you're not going to be able to put enough bait out to do much of anything to put a dent in it. Yeah, um, we, we've done quite a lot of field research with, with baits, a variety of different baits. Um, and, it, you know, sort of the, the end result is um, that there, there aren't many granular baits on the market that, that um, work very well on these guys. There is a product called Invict Blitz that's labeled for crazy ants. And we did some field trials with it. It is a granular, but it's a different um, carrier matrix than like Amdro and the baits that most folks are familiar with. It kills them. Um, but, but just as you say, um, Lizzie, if, you, if you're in a big uh, uh, geographic extent of a range of, of these ants, if you happen to be in the middle, you might kill a lot of ants around your property, but they're just gonna move back in. Um, so, and we, we, we've tried lots of liquid baits too. So these are, these are carbohydrate seeking ants. So, so they've kind of got a sweet tooth. So a lot of the, the liquid baits are effective on them. It's just, you know, you, you, can, you can bait a structure and it will, you know, you'll find as, as Molly described earlier, these carcass fields of ants, but within, you know, 15, 20 days, you've got the same population density if you can't keep yeah. baiting. And usually if I, with people using liquid baits on these, it's like, do you tell them to dilute the bait to get more volume out to the population? Or are you just having them use the bait straight up? Mm. Yeah. So, um, so with liquid baits, there's actually a couple of baits that are, you know, labeled for dilution. So like um, there, there was a, a project that we did in Bryan, Texas with Max Force Quantum. And it has a dilution uh, dilution instructions on, on the label. Yeah, it's a very good ant bait. Uh, very good for rover ants as well. Um, but yeah, so, so you basically dilute it with a sugar water solution. But then, you know, the, the next trick is, well, uh, how, how do you offer it to them, right? And, and we used uh, a device that's been widely used for Argentine ant control in, in California. It's called a, it's KM Pro bait stations. And they're like a little uh, bait, uh, liquid bait silo. And they kind of look like a chest pond about, you know, maybe 10 inches tall. It's kind of like a dog watering dish, but for yeah. ants. That's exactly right. Yeah, that allows the, the bait to flow into a trough and the ants can come up, they're sheltered from the sun and rain. And yeah, th those work really well. I know a uh, PMP locally who has become a tawny crazy ant specialist and he, um, he takes uh, hummingbird feeders. He paints them black and he fills them with liquid ant bait that he manufactures in his shop and uh, applies it for the, so, so these ants are, the, um, they're much more likely to climb into tree canopies than like red imported fire ants. So they spend a lot of time um, tending honeydew producing insects in the trees, so scales and aphids and the like. So he'll mount these in trees and offer baits up there. How does that go over with homeowners and them panicking that hummingbirds might get into them? Well, that's the idea of painting them black you know, so that they're not visually Less attractive. attractive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to contact or, you know, residual type pesticides that aren't going to be bait pesticides. Mm -hmm. So there are over-the-counter versions that can be utilized, but then there are also products like you mentioned earlier, the Termidor product from BASF that has a label exception 
that can be used uh, to treat, I believe, what, two feet up and 10 feet out twice a year for tawnies. And that one's going to have a little bit different chemistry than the stuff that homeowners have access to. And so in my opinion, I, since that termidor could only be used twice a year, I usually tell people that they need to save that for when the tawny population is really going crazy. If you've only got a few of them kind of going around, you don't want to use that. Go get an over-the-counter product at that point and do it yourself. But when you're talking millions of ants in your backyard, that's when you need to hit it with the, the Fipronil, in my opinion. Yeah. Robert, do you yeah. agree? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. If, if you've got, so the first thing to make everybody aware of, is that the truth is that individually speaking, these are really wimpy ants. They're really sorry ants when it comes to their ability to handle being treated with an insecticide. Um, so on an individual basis, you know, almost any of the, the products you'll find at any of the big box stores um, that are applied as a residual insecticide will kill them. Um, one of the reasons why we lean on Termidor as a um, either a last resort and a big infestation um, kind of as you described, Quizzy, um, is the binding properties of that molecule. So um, fipronil is the active ingredient. And, and there are other products that you can buy in the market that use fipronil. It's now a generic um, pesticide. So there's lots of companies that have um, fipronil in residually active insecticides. And all that really means is that they, they bind, the fipronil really binds well to the substrate that it's applied to. That's why it's such a good termiticide. Um, and stays put. And it breaks down pretty slowly relative to other insecticides. So, but, but the reason that I mentioned that quarantine exemption label earlier, and, and as you just described, you can, you can treat three feet up this, the perimeter of the structure and 10 feet out, which is a lot more material um, than, than you can with other fipronil products because they don't have the same um, uh, label exemption. So then the question is, well, is that enough? Well, so, sometimes it's not. And so I talk to people often and say, listen, you, you know, just because you've treated your house with an, a contact insecticide like fipronil or you know, some other active ingredient, doesn't mean that you have to stop there. So for instance, with that quarantine exemption label, we go three feet up and 10 feet out, but then you can continue from that 10 foot um, distance from the structure with another product. And so what, what we tell people is, you know, you, if, if you're in one of those really heavy, high density infestations, it may work best for you to treat the exterior perimeter of your structure and then extend the treated barrier, build a bigger insecticide buffer around your house. And this can keep them out for a fairly long period of time. So when we did the work that you mentioned earlier down in Texas City, we were able to keep these ants off of structures from getting to the houses and forage on the houses for three months. And so that's pretty significant. So you, could, you, you might be able to get away with just one treatment a year doing that. And you, know, you might have to come back with a second treatment late in the year. Um, you know, it's just, just depends on the density of the ants there. But yeah, so you really, you, the big key though, is if, if you're going to treat, um, you, you gotta expand um, the area around the perimeter of your structure if you're in a big, as I call them, ripping infestation of these ants. And Molly, Molly, you mentioned earlier that um, the ants, when they're dead, like if somebody does a barrier treatment, that it, it looks like coffee grounds or something. So 
can you explain why that's kind of a problem when those ants are building up and you know how how could people overcome that if they're just using over the counter products that they've purchased to do it themselves i think what you're asking wizzy is that um so once they once they encounter that pesticide they start to pile up and pile up and then they essentially dilute it where they're not coming in contact with the pesticide and then able to continue to get inside. And I guess as a homeowner, you could sweep up those dead ones, move them out of the way so that you're, you're leaving that area of, you know, of, of chemical basically so that they, that what does come back um, is exposed to it, hopefully gets sick and, and dies there again. Yeah. So they're, they're coming into contact again with the pesticide instead of walking over dead ants. And I've known PMPs that um, rather than sweeping, they'll use like a leaf blower, something to blow oh, them off yeah. so that you don't, yeah, you're not pulling the molecules off the concrete. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unwanted Guests. Managing tawny crazy ants can be overwhelming, but break it down into smaller tasks and seek, seek help from a pest management professional if needed. For more information, go to extensionentomology.tamu.com. Catch you next time.